My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Hello, everybody. I'm Ken Oliver here for another edition of the Prison Post. I'm excited today to have Lauren Bell as our guest as we introduce our first episode that deals with the state of workforce development for formerly incarcerated people and justice-involved men and women across the state. Today, we're going to be talking to Lauren Bell of Checker. Uh, she's one of the torchbearers in facilitating fair chance hiring in the state, and she has a wonderful story uh, to share. She's also a personal friend of mine, so I was glad to have you, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So, Lauren, what I'd like for you to do first is tell people what I already know, what a wonderful person you are. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I want you to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, uh, where you come from, how you got involved with criminal justice work on the back end in reference to hiring. Uh, And so, yeah, uh, tell us about yourself. Thank you. So, again, thank you so much for having me today. Um, I appreciate our conversation so much about fair chance hiring, so it's great to be able to take it to this level as well. Um, As Ken said, my name is Lauren Bell. I'm the fair chance development manager with Checker. And um, I've only been with Checker about nine months, so um, I'm excited to also tell a little bit about how I got there. Sure. Um, so I came to California in 1993 and really started off doing a lot of violence prevention, gang violence prevention work in San Francisco, um, and then really started to focus early on on workforce and started with young people, started with juveniles, um, and really focusing on school and work. Right. And every single year I was working on it, I was, you know, learning more about the system, learning more about the adult system and getting more and more interested on what kind of opportunities were and were not available to people. Um, I went back to school and got a master's in public administration and was fortunate at that time to actually get hired by the city and county of San Francisco and um, worked with then District Attorney Kamala Harris, Latifah Simon, Lenore Anderson, uh, so many people who are doing amazing things. Sure. Obviously, you know, we know what's going on nationally right now. Right. So very excited to see these next steps for now VP elect Harris. Um, and it was during those years. Sorry, this thing is falling off. It's OK. Thank you. Um, it was during those years um, in the DA's office that we really were doing a lot of workforce work. It was focused on uh, first time drug sellers really looking at the root drivers of, you know, why was somebody getting into sales, um, maybe having some struggles with addiction, but really much the economics behind sales. And how do we as a society provide support for that person to think differently about what skills, what abilities you're using in that way, and how to obviously convert them into something that um, has less likelihood of landing you in the criminal right. justice system. Well, well, wait, if, if I can just interject, because I'm even learning something new about your start in the district attorney's office. And I think it's interesting because so many of us who have been justice involved typically think of the DA's office and the DA as being this, you know, terrible person or terrible office that only seeks to prosecute black and brown people and put people away for long periods of time. And so to hear you actually start to talk about you worked in the DA's office and we're already thinking about mechanisms to provide people economic equity, mm-hmm. uh, can you talk about some of the some of the myths that go along with the DA and, 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 and 
you know, clarify for us uh, that the DA's office even does work like that, or is that just limited to San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, obviously there's um, a lot of problems in the, you know, the world of prosecution and um, laws and um, the challenges and the realities that you just mentioned are 100% real. Um, We do have leaders that are prosecutors that are doing great things. Um, Obviously, when D.A. Harris was uh, in office, then D.A. Harris was in office. She was very progressive at her time. I think in looking at, you know, where she's at right now, obviously there's still a lot of criticisms. And I think she is somebody that also wants to stand up to kind of what was going on at that time to understand it better, what the decisions were that she made, sure, uh, both on prosecution and then on also reentry and workforce development. But she definitely wanted to use the uh, leverage of that office to keep many people as she could, as many people as she could, out of jail, out of prison. And it's not really a storyline that many people in our kind of progressive circles sure. can really vibe on to because there were so many problems and there's so many challenges. And I totally recognize that, but I was fortunate well, to work with a team of people that worked on workforce. If I can just interject, I'm, I'm so glad that you are introducing this narrative because there's a narrative that I hear on social media, et cetera, that talks about Kamala Harris wanting to lock up black men and she's locked up black people, et cetera. And I just know through my own experience, whether that's true or not true based on a person's perspective, that she in the 90s was the only prosecutor in the state yeah. that refused to prosecute three strikes cases and give people life in prison yeah. for nonviolent and non-serious felonies. Now, that's a bold move because every other county in the state like yeah. jumped on that three strike bandwagon. And she was the only one that stood alone in the entire state that said she refused to do it from day one. So to hear about this narrative that she was trying to actually help people in the community, yep. uh, I think is one that needs to be advanced. And I just really appreciate you uh, bringing that up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was really important to me too. Like I wasn't somebody who was a natural fit for the DA's office. And, you know, I really don't want to undercount that there were life experiences for people and families that weren't kind of uh, with that, you know, kind of rose through that those rose-colored glasses per se. Um, and so I really want to recognize there's so many flaws in the system. There were so many flaws when we worked in there. At the same time, we did have a leader, as you just said, sure. who was trying to look differently, who was trying to um, really um, take bold steps that other prosecutors really weren't ready to do. Right. And she did that. Um, And she got heat on both sides. You know, when you're in a a leadership role like that, you really can't appease anybody to a certain degree. But in my experience, I know everybody has different opinions, but my experience is she's a tenacious leader and she is a caring leader and she really does want to see communities succeed. So when we were, yeah. So when we were working on, um, that was kind of my first steps into workforce development and um, adults uh, and kind of adults facing um, a, a lot of time, a lot of um, difficulties and kind of breaking into just like legal markets. So we worked with Goodwill Industries. Um, we worked with the Chamber of Commerce. We worked with business partners then and really tried to provide a lot of steps that somebody could take to um, build their career portfolio, uh, take steps into um, a new direction. And some people, you know, I think at least uh, 170 or so people went through the programs in the couple of years that I was there, uh, resulting in a deferred um, judgment. So all of their their felonies getting dismissed. 
Um, it was a deferred entry of judgment program. So, you know, that was a lot of people who did not get felonies sure. on their record through that. Didn't go to prison. Did not go to prison. And um, that nexus between policy, between workforce development, between the criminal justice system, and all of those really important linkages just really kind of sunk in with me. Um, and when, in 2011, criminal justice realignment happened, and uh, California saw this influx of you know policy and uh, monies come to the local level, I was even more interested in what kind of an impact the city could make uh, in the lives of people um, who wanted to work, you know. So I went to the adult probation department and uh, started off as the reentry services manager there. And it was, you know, in part uh, community collaboration. It was in part organizing. It was in part um, administrative kind of contracts management and then in part policy. And it was really about trying to, you know, kind of leverage city resources with community expertise to make change and really change on individual lives, but also on the communities that uh, we were working in. So um, we were fortunate because realignment really came with an influx of funds that San Francisco and other counties hadn't seen in a long time. And we were able to really build a lot. And a lot of it was focused on workforce. Right. Well, actually that's where, when you and I met, you were in at probation and, you know, I can remember myself, I've always had a negative view of probation and parole in general coming from L.A. County. Um, and when I met you and listened to you speak um, a couple of different times, I was amazed at your compassion and your approach to your work because it wasn't police oriented at all. Uh, it wasn't repressive at all. It was very human. Mm-hmm. Uh and I just fell in love with the way that you navigated people and the way you treated people on a higher level uh, and respected their humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, you are responsible solely for changing the way that I even look at those arms of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the nonprofit community, the criminal justice reform community, we typically hear people talk about not wanting to take money from probation, not wanting to be involved with, you know, different entities of the state or county. Mm-hmm. Uh and you are a testament, you know, and I'm letting everybody know up front, you're a testament to the fact that there are very real people that have jobs in probation. There are very real people that have jobs in parole that are trying to do good things uh, for the community. So, you know, my hats go off to you for that. And, and, and uh, you did something to a very stubborn person, and that has changed his mind about the way that he views uh, probation. So thank you. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, so, as you said, so many people share that viewpoint. And I don't always want to sound like the the, kind of the person who finds the middle ground in it, but I do. And I mean, I recognize that there are problems. I mean, there's so many probation departments, parole uh, offices around the state, around the country that aren't doing the right thing. So all of the advocacy, all of the passion, all of the desire for change is essential. And so my, I always tip my hat to every vocal person who's out there that's calling for change on those fronts because it's necessary. Five year probation, uh, you know, uh, lifetime parole, they, they're just the, it's lifetime sentences for people. Obviously it's just not, it's not, um, what we should be doing in a civil society for people who are really trying to make a change for themselves. Um, so hat tip to, um, everybody who's out there pushing for change. There are folks who are planted within there that, as you said, really are about, um, kind of being in the belly of the beast and trying to make change from within, we have a, a state, we have a system 
that will still direct funds in a certain direction. And there is, um, in my opinion, in my experience, a good opportunity to balance what we were talking about earlier, kind of structure and accountability with opportunity. Um, and some people don't like the way that sounds. It still feels maybe punitive to someone. For others um, in my work, including individuals who have come home, that kind of balance works for them, that in some cases um, it's helpful to have somebody, and I'm not talking about like the hand of the law coming down on somebody, but just that there's a little bit more accountability structure to them, um, and that it is done in a humane way, that it is done in a dignified way, that everything is about how can you become your best self? You know, you and I talk about that, like all of this work, whether it's criminal justice, uh, whether it's human services, everything should be about what are we doing to help um, our, our neighbor, our friend, our, our client um, take the steps to become their best self. And um, we need resources, we need expertise, we need opportunities. And, you know, to get to some of where we're going to go today, we need businesses to step sure. in and kind of recognize the talents of people. Um, so there are a lot of good people out there. Um, but again, I recognize that there's so much change that needs to happen. And um, I'm always happy to just be a part of it all. Sure. Well, we, we, we appreciate you. Uh, I'm curious, though. I mean, you went from being a lead in the probation department in San Francisco uh, to now you're in the private sector. Right. And you're in the tech space. So, yeah. so I'd like for everybody to understand, or I'd like for you to tell the story about how you go from being in probation and what all that entails to being in the tech sector at a company like Checker. Yeah. My kind of, you know, the 50,000 foot view for things is just very much like, how do we take care of each other as a society? What is the public sector's responsibility? What is the foundation philanthropic responsibility um, and in this case, what is the business responsibility? And to be honest with you, a year and a half ago, aside from referring people to open jobs in the private sector, I hadn't really thought that much about what the business's real responsibility to shoulder change was. Um, Checker had come to uh, probation probably around 2014 or 15 when they were just starting because their CEO, our CEO, is um, – a really dynamic person, and he was trying to really build his company from the ground up. So he was building partnerships with organizations in the Bay Area, and he happened to also reach out to adult probation to learn about what we were doing. Um, we actually partnered on kind of a clean slate event one time, an expungement event. Um, so I knew of them many a moon ago. And then um, a year and a half or so ago, I went to their Checker Forward event, and that's also where right. I saw you again. Right. Um, and was just really taken by this nexus between business and fair chance, um, business and social justice. And it got me thinking so much more and got me really motivated about businesses have this amazing role to play. There's a fear that businesses have of people who have been through the system. They, you know, whether or not it's a, a risk fear about bringing somebody on board. Um, there is a uh, myth that people have, I think. Anybody that doesn't have friends who have been through the system or family members that have been through the system, it's just human. They're operating on very limited knowledge. Sure. They're operating on headlines and movies. Like it's, there's not enough um, in-depth connection right. with people in life experience to make, be making informed decisions. 
And so I just got really excited about like, wow, this business is interested in opening its doors, not just to people, but to a concept of change and to shouldering this um, notion that they can um, set an example for other businesses. So Checker Forward really got me thinking like, wow, what can businesses do? And I wasn't necessarily ready to leave the city because I actually really appreciated the work that we did. And I felt like um, a lot of people's lives were being positively impacted. But, you know, I also just said to myself, like, I want to keep learning and I want to keep growing and I want to see where I can um, make an additional impact and bring something new to people, my network in the city as well. So quick, quick question for for those of us that don't know, can you tell us who Checker is, Mm -hmm. what they do, and then maybe tie in together how you see or what your perspective is on somebody that does what Checker does, but then also being in the forefront while trying to be in the forefront of their business, their core business, also being in the forefront of something like fair opportunity or fair chance hiring as it were. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll start with the first part. So um, Checker is a background check company. And it definitely also, similar to what I was saying earlier about the DA's office, it wasn't like kind of a a business and industry that um, I would have naturally saw myself with. Um, And especially the juxtaposition of the background check company with Fair Chance Hiring, you know, it didn't make sense at first. You know, we all know that background checks are one of the, leading barriers to getting employment if you have a conviction history. Um, As I started to unpack Checker and learn about it, you know, as I was preparing for the interview, it just became more and more apparent that it was a a company that was built uh, to really uh, create an amazing technology. You know, they wanted to be able to help companies uh, have an efficient hiring process and recruiting process, but that their mission was very organically their fair chance mission was very organically threaded through everything that they did and so one of the kind of mottos of checker is that our business is stronger with our mission and our mission is stronger with our business absolutely and it really does work like that um so as a business as a background check company from the engineers to the product team to the legal team uh to the fair chance folks and beyond Everybody is constantly looking at our our technology and thinking, is this feature, is this product fair? Is this product um, increasing bias in some way? And really trying to build in features that enable employers to think more critically about that as well. And, you know, it's not a perfect science. So it's not like, okay, we have a product, now employers don't have any bias in their hiring, obviously. There's still so much of it that happens, but I feel really clear that this company is taking great steps in the right direction to educate employers, to open up labor pools that are much broader to include people with conviction histories. So there is a nexus there that is so important and so organic and that makes a lot of sense. And as a background check company that is a fair chance employer, we set our own metrics every single year. So this year we aspired to have 7% of our workforce be people who are previously incarcerated. Wow. That's, that's dope. It is. It's that's amazing. Dope. And, I, you know, we had to pivot a little bit because hiring slowed during COVID, but 
everybody is still really geared up for how can we try to hit our modified goal of 5.5%. We're currently at 5, uh, 5.5% by the end of the year. And it's from the CEO um, to the, you know, executive staff to everybody where there's a commitment to how to achieve this goal. Um, it's an incredible corporate uh, corporation with a lot of social responsibility. And I think Checker is, you know, to toot the horn of where I work, I think setting an amazing example <clears throat> to other businesses. Absolutely. I just want to unpack a little bit because some people may not know what fair chance is. We throw that word around loosely because we're in the business. Uh, in 2018, what many people may know is ban the box became codified into law under the fair chance act. Uh, I believe it was AB 1008 mm-hmm. uh, that basically made it where a, an employer, right, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, an employer cannot do a background check on a person that applies for a job until they're ready to make that person a job offer. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it takes that box off that many of us had problems with, was, which is, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all had sweat. We've all had sweat coming from our brows at that very moment when we're filling out an application, and we know that this is probably going to be the make or break Yep. of whether we even get a job or our application gets looked at. So that was a law that was codified in 2018, and so that's what we mean when we talk about fair chance. Some people call it fair opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever we call it, it's an opportunity for people that have criminal records to get back into the workforce in a meaningful way, yep. right? Definitely. Um, I'd like to segue that into um, what the landscape of that looks like and, and what does it really mean when we talk about people coming out of prison, 38,000 people a year uh, come home from the prison environment, 8 million people in California have felony convictions. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean and what does it look like for you who are actually the boots on the ground for um, interviewing folks, dealing with folks, creating programs for folks? Uh, what is the landscape of workforce development for fair chance, uh, hirees or fair opportunity people? Mm-hmm. So we are in an amazing time of talking about this. People like, you know, with your expertise, your whole team. Um, and then I think in our networks, there's just so many people that have committed their lives to um, advancing opportunities for people who were previously incarcerated. So all of that legwork that was done from, you know, Dorsey Nunn to folks in, um, you know, San Francisco who were some of the uh, – on the front lines of creating fair chance opportunities and fair chance legislation. I think San Francisco was the first city to pass it. Um, So a lot of work has been done and we still have a long way to go. Um, I think there's a lot of doors have been opened uh, to people because of it. But I think we also know there's criticisms both from fair chance and from, um, ban the box, that they were necessary steps and they were the absolute right ways to go. And we still know that once the record comes back, that oftentimes people will be denied. Not as much, but it does still happen. And so some of the kind of next step work is really just dispelling some of the myths because we know that sometimes people are getting fired or, excuse me, not hired because people don't understand uh, what the talent is, what the... Uh, contribution could be of this person who happens to have sure. a conviction history. And there's too much of a tie between that conviction history and somebody's thoughts on their potential that we need to kind of keep untangling. Sure. And so some of the next steps with Fair Chance um, that we're doing at Checker is really just trying to work with other businesses to understand 
We're not asking, and I think most um, people in our in our network, our Fair Chance Social Justice Network, we're not necessarily saying to businesses, you know, we need you to develop a program. We need you to lower your standard by anybody's um, assessment. If you are somebody who is aspiring for the job, you want to get the job because you, you're the best fit. You want to be recognized for what you're going to bring to the table. But there's still this notion that, like, you know, you're going to do somebody a favor. It's a um, it's a, a program that you need to um, to build, and we're saying that's not the case. We're just saying a great fit for a position might be overlooked because of, A, your background check, your adjudication right. parameters are way too restricted, so you wouldn't even be able to consider somebody, or that, B, if that person got through, you're still worried about kind of what that person might contribute to the, the culture or the, the risk or the liability of a business. Right. And in both situations, um, there's a lot of learning that has to happen. Um, so as I said, the next step is really around just sort of humanizing um, people who have gone through the criminal justice system and recognizing that a record isn't indicative of the potential. Sure, sure. They, you know, de- definitely people are more than the mistakes that they've made in, in their life, and they probably shouldn't be charged uh, for that mistake forever. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that there are over 4,000, I believe, collateral consequences yep. uh, that flow from a criminal conviction, and we really have to do a better job as a community to allow people access back into the community because it's difficult to say you've served your time for the state and we want you to reintegrate and do the right thing. But then there are all these barriers that almost prohibit people from doing the right thing on a continuous basis. So we we definitely need to do a better job of that. You you, you hit on something that, that piqued my curiosity in reference to learning. And I'm curious, especially you working at a tech company, um, or a tech-related company, uh, how important is it in your mind uh, that people coming from the prison environment uh, have access to technology? Because it's almost what happens sometimes in, in uh, impoverished black and brown communities where people don't have access to Wi-Fi. People don't have access to the latest in technology. And the fact is we live in a technological world, right? More jobs are going to go to artificial intelligence. More jobs are going to automation. And so when you deal with the prison environment, you know, in the prison system in California and most places across the country, they don't allow technology into the prison system right. by any means. And so it, it, it's interested me to talk to so many hundreds and thousands of people that come out and don't know how to work a simple email, don't know how to pay a bill mobily yep. on the phone or on their laptop. And so how important do you think the role of technology is or should be um, with people coming home to be able to access the type of jobs that you all give people at a company like Checker? It's critical. Um, I mean, you really kind of framed it perfectly. In this day and age, everything is based on computers. Like there's very few, like, you know, to get an appointment at Kaiser now, you go online, (laughs) you know, like you no longer just make these phone calls. And, you know, of course you can, but there's so much more access that can happen through being computer literate. So, I mean, I think... The prison system is trying to open up in some ways. I know, you know, like, I mean, obviously everybody knows there's tablets and there's like, you know, these baby steps that are being taken. But as a society, yeah, I mean, people should be getting a lot more preparation before they come out. Um, I have to give credit to like, you know, businesses like Google who are giving Chromebooks out to different organizations to try to level this playing field a little bit more. 
the more, you know, a safe space, so to speak, um, or a great space for businesses to step into could be having your teams do computer literacy with folks come home, coming home. Sure. Um, you know, we do it a lot with individuals who are 18 to 25 and it's amazing. Um, 18 to 25 year olds oftentimes also have more knowledge of, uh, kind of this digital world. Right. Somebody who's been inside for 20 years, 25 years and is coming out does not. So kind of some one-on-one coaching between the, you know, business tech sector with an organization, you know, super shout out to places like Code Tenderloin. Absolutely. Who open their doors um, and are really just <coughs> on the front lines and renegades of um, bridging uh, the digital world with uh, people who were previously incarcerated. Incredible. So, you know, Partnering with organizations like that and bringing um, literacy skills is essential. I mean, you can't even work at um, anywhere anymore. You can't work at Starbucks anymore without being know- knowing how to use an iPad. Registers are That's different. Right. Everything is, you know, very um, kind of just uh, new, you know, kind of new technology. Sure. And so even if you don't know everything, your brain just needs to be able to um, have some nimbleness to these new technologies. And uh, we all have to step into that and really bring that to the table. Um, you know, you know, we recently, uh, through Checker, did a career development class in partnership with Defy NorCal. Sure. And extremely um, amazing experience. There was five EITs, entrepreneurs in training in the class, and many of them had done decades of time. And we got almost 30 checkers to step up and provide their expertise across eight different classes um, from computer literacy to, uh, you know, kind of effective communication, effective writing, interview skills, all of the main basics. But it was this incredible experience of connection between, you know, people who have lived different lifestyles. Sure. And, um, it was re- as rewarding for the EITs as it was for the checkers and vice versa. So the other like space for fair chance is really just in building connections between people. And when businesses can do it well, like I think we do, it creates this opportunity for growth. You know, at Checker, we're lucky because our mission is fair chance. So people are already in that mindset. But I right. guarantee you, <clears throat> if it was the drop boxes, the Zooms, the... Um, other tech companies in the world um, making sure that their staff avail their talent to somebody that's coming home, that everybody is going to have this same experience of just, wow, this integrity, this authenticity, this humility, you know, and this grit that somebody who's been through the system brings to the table is beautiful and amazing. And it's the same values that somebody in the business world has. I mean, as you said earlier, I'm new to the tech world and I see the desire for growth, the desire for, um, you know, kind of upward mobility of my colleagues there. And it's the same values that we all share and it comes together just so perfectly right. in these situations where the business community comes together with folks who have come home. Right. That, that that's, a, that's a perfect segue into my next point, talking about computer literacy and the need for uh, that to bridge that digital divide. I want to talk a little bit about the skill gap. Um, One of the things that happens in the prison environment is there's typically a low expectation historically, Uh, not blaming anybody for that. Typically they teach very labor intensive trades or vocations uh, because they expect people basically to use brute 
you know, strength uh, in the men's prison anyway. And so they teach things like, you know, construction trades. They teach things like forklift trades and things that, you know, revolve around lifting things most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that talking to a lot of tech companies and other people like you, that there's a lot of conversation around value and the skills that people bring to the table. And I'm wondering um, how you have dealt with that and how Checkers dealt with evaluating the lack of skill development and whether you think in the prison environment or maybe even initially outside of the prison environment, there's a need for skill development for people or for the opportunity for people to actually reskill and skill themselves up so they can access some of these jobs that you're talking about. Yes. There's a lot of folks just by their own um, education, you know, you and I and myself with others too. I mean, there's a lot of people that really um, take a lot of steps while they're inside to build skills in a lot of different ways, whether it's through reading or, you know, different jobs, et cetera transferable skills that become very viable outside as well. Um, So all of that is really important, but um, it is critical that if somebody wants to get into kind of a more tailored environment, like a tech company where it is, um, it's a different, uh, you know, set of norms. It's a different style. It's a different vocabulary that's happening. Uh, certainly, you know, all of the range of platforms that get used in tech companies uh, really require, again, the computer literacy that we were talking about. But there's so much opportunity for the trainings to happen, for skills building to happen. I mean, for us, what we really do is partner with organizations who have expertise in both kind of the um, just personal development, uh, the, you know, kind of the soft skill stuff, as well as some of the vocational training. Um, and it's also important that the business sector, again, to kind of piggyback on what I said earlier, avails itself of the expertise that it has to bring to uh, people who are previously incarcerated. So more specifically, in addition to the career devel- development pathway, we actually did a sales, uh, uh, sales uh, tech sales sure, pathway. Remember, Sorry, yeah. Um, and... Uh, It was extremely successful. The manager of the sales team, um, Tessa Greenleaf, just stepped up in this most magnificent of ways. And she had an enablement, what we call a lot of times in the tech world, this enablement skills building curriculum for new hires. Everybody kind of goes through it. And uh, she was able to modify that enablement program um, into about eight sessions. And so we partnered uh, with a variety of partners, uh, The Last Mile, um, again, Define NorCal, um, uh, to name a couple, and um, walked people through uh, eight sessions of what I call fundamentals to excellence uh, to this job. And again, the connection was incredible, but in this situation, the hard skills was incredible. Right. And so I know that people uh, graduated from that class uh, with skills that they can take other places. And I know one person went to business school after he got out of class with us and really kind of credits some of the motivation he got through that class to take the next steps. And he actually reached back out to me the other day, and he's writing a paper. And the paper has to be on like kind of helping a business solve a problem. And so he's trying to think about how he might be able to work with Checker to figure out a problem that we're currently working on and how he can shed some insight and some experience into it 
and it kind of dovetails with sure. the work he was doing in that pathway. So hard skills, the, you know, the business sector, the tech sector can figure out ways for their teams to make their, their craft, their talent available to others. And I think partnering with people, you know, to be honest with people like the crop organization, um, Code Tenderloin, Defy NorCal's of the world, all these organizations that are on the front lines of working with folks who have come home. And then the business sector comes in and says, you know, here's what we can do. We can provide this eight to 10 week class again on this fundamentals to excellence. It's not 360 degrees. It's not a four year degree, but it's everything you might need to uh, be really competent in an interview. You know, everything you might need to launch or change your career. So there's a need and hopefully there should be more of a motivation to making that kind of opportunity happen. Well, I think what's interesting, you know, in some of the conversations that I have, we talk about the current state of mass incarceration in California. And what's interesting to me and what should be interesting to everybody in California who pays taxes is we currently spend about $80,000 a year to put a person in a cage. And usually that stay is about four to five years which means that we're spending four to five hundred thousand dollars putting people in a cage, mm-hmm. and on the other side of that, we're spending five hundred dollars a year to actually rehabilitate somebody or provide somebody transitional type of services like hard skilling uh, that would allow them to actually go out and earn a livable wage. And to me, the balance of those dollars is obscene, right? And it really should be the other way around. I mean, if we could, if we invested half of that money in someone's education, put them on the pathway to success and whatever that was, manufacturing, truck driving, tech, whatever it was, I think the results we would see in the recidivism rate would go down tremendously. I think California would be a more safer place. It's a public safety issue as well. Uh, So, you know, I really try try to hone in on that narrative of the resources that we spend to do harm to folks rather than what you all are doing for a relatively small amount of money. You're able to take an eight week course, train people and it has ripple effects at colleges. It has ripple effects with people applying for other jobs and you just see an amazing result. So, you know, hats off to checker for holding those type of workshops for formerly incarcerated people. I think that's just super dope that y'all are doing that. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I know there's other businesses out there that do it too. I mean, people uh, collaborate with like climb, excuse me, climb higher is another organization Um, so it is necessary. I mean, just to tap into what you were saying before too, I mean, it is really, really mind blowing that as a country, we still, I mean, everything is just focused so much on the punitive side of the justice system. And that's where the bulk of the resources go. And on the flip side, we do have some policies that shifted through advocacy efforts. So your prop 47s and, you know, um, streams of funds, that um, are intended to achieve some of what you just said. And I think, you know, even though it's been several years where it's been implemented, we still have many more years to really kind of fully vet out, like, how can these resources create opportunities? You know, I think there's still a very traditional way of using the resources from the state to a few different organizations, et cetera. And we have to keep pushing each other to innovate. How do we use those resources differently? For me, um, and I think this is probably going to come down the pike uh, in the next few years, too, I keep seeing stuff through through the Department of Labor, apprenticeship opportunities growing, but really trying to um, tighten even more 
relationships between city colleges, between organizations on the front lines, between businesses, and really kind of creating pathways that are very accessible by community members, you know, that it's not just um, kind of that feeling of just like traditional application to college, and I'm going to go to college and then take these steps, but something that's organic where community organizations are really um, at the front line of walking somebody all the way through and kind of getting somebody all the way through to that business relationship right? where they're helping somebody get that job too. So um, resources need to be spent in that way. Absolutely. You, you, you touch it on something that's very dear to my heart, which is policy. Um, I love policy. People know that people who know me and, and I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint, what role you see policy playing. I mean, we're seeing currently a lot of prison releases, people being released from prison, which is rightfully so uh, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, Typically in a given year, 38,000 people are released from prison uh, back into the community. And what I've experienced is that there is so much effort and rightfully so on criminal justice reform on the front end, changing laws. We have juvenile laws, uh, 260, 261, Prop 47, Prop 57, Prop 36, and some of these things. And we just defeated uh, Prop 20 uh, at this year's election. And I, and I start to think about the infrastructure. What happens to all the people that we've let out, right? Mm-hmm. Because we know that the prison system doesn't do a very good job of preparing people for the realities of freedom, meaning starting from scratch when you don't have a set of clothes to wear, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have a job. You don't have a stable place to stay. And so I'm wondering, what role do you think policy plays in uh, fostering some of these changes or infrastructure that we talk about? And and do do policymakers in Sacramento have a role in making sure that we're just not dropping people off in the tenderloin in San Francisco and saying, go fend for yourself? Should laws be created to foster relationships between jobs, training that you spoke about, Etc. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, there the backbone of change is oftentimes, uh, you know, led by amazing policy, which is oftentimes informed by amazing front lines people who are working with legislators. So, I think it does. The parallel piece that I'm really interested in, though, too, is just you know, kind of again getting back to the business community that there's a responsibility that people should be taking that in addition to kind of creating the demand, the requirement, um, the opportunities through policy, is that there's just a natural flow that at some point in time, again, getting back to the the point of our conversation, when we're talking about somebody who's been released from prison, who is really motivated to work, really wants to figure out how to skill themselves up, uh, really wants to get in with the right networks to make changes. And as a society, that person is denied the opportunity because of that past. We keep kind of coming back to this, this, this concept. It's just, not only is it not fair, it just doesn't make any sense. And so policy, I'm not sure is ever going to necessarily tell that business person, hire this person. It has to also be kind of an intrinsic motivation for that business person to say, I will. I mean, the federal government, state government has tried with tax credits. The sure. tax credits, though, I mean, it was some, you know, I think it was up to like 2400 unless you were also somebody who was on TANF, you could get up to, you know, kind of $10,000 in tax credits. When you're working with a company that's got like hundreds upon hundreds of employees around the world, it's 
not the incentive is is great. It's just not maybe the incentive that's going to scale to the point that we're looking for. So you're looking for businesses that are willing to say to themselves, I recognize that having a record, it shouldn't prevent me from reviewing. We're talking about reviewing a candidate. There's no requirement that the person gets hired. They still have to go through the same interview process, that grueling space of, you know, demonstrating that you're the best fit. So what I'm interested in is, you know, you and I and, you know, our colleagues and friends keep talking about kind of creating these ripple effects for businesses to break down their own myths, their own stereotypes, their misunderstandings of people who have been through the system and kind of of their own volition saying, I get it more and more. I'm going to talk to my teams, my recruiting. Buy-in. Yeah, getting their buy-in. Their, their talent, their recruiting teams and saying, you know what, we're, I mean, the adjudication restrictions sometimes that people have, it's just, it's, you know, in my opinion, it's just not reasonable, but it's from their, you know, actuarial, so to speak standpoint, it is. Um, But there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, you know, we talk a lot about it's relationship building. It's getting that. Every CEO that we know that's had that aha moment of, wow, I understand this a little bit better, hasn't just been because they read a book or because a policy was passed. It was because they sat down with another human being and they were just like, I really understand things differently now. And so I think we need to keep, it's difficult to scale that, but at the same time, it's not impossible to keep finding spaces for people in business leadership positions to talk with folks um, like yourself, like so many of our friends and colleagues, uh, and have that aha moment. Wow, that's that's some deep perspective, and it, it just always goes back to what we hear in just about every business or every walk of life, it's relationships, 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 mm-hmm. and being able to create different narratives and have different conversations. So very important, and, and we appreciate you sharing uh, that piece of it. And we'll continue to build relationships so we can open up doors for men and women uh, coming out of these prisons in California. Yeah. Uh, I want you, if you can, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you're doing and some of the stuff that checker is doing out of state i know that you know you've mentioned to me a few times about programs you guys are putting together you have a new office out there in colorado congratulations on that and and what your what your game plan is so to speak for the future for this work so definitely um continuing with kind of our core work our core fair chance work um falls in a few different buckets so one of the buckets continues to be just our technology and our product so i mentioned that earlier it's critical. Like that's where scale change comes. That's kind of where one of our biggest metrics is. One of our metrics is um, unblocking 1 million people. And that means Mm. so 1 million people whose records might have previously prevented them from being considered gets, um, you know, adjudicated differently so that they can be considered for a job. And so we're about 89% towards our goal for the end of the year by December. But technology, our products, that's where we can kind of scale the biggest change for people. And so, you know, Checker will continue to do that. And the teams are amazingly talented in working on that. Um, The second bucket is really around um, our own internal fair chance hiring and continuing to really be uh, intentional about working with partners, 
uh, working with our network so that when we have open jobs that we can find talent that is, A, interested in working in the tech sector, um, and B, is the right fit for the job as well. And so really working um, to create that opportunity internally. And then the third bucket is kind of the one that you're talking about also in Denver is really on leveraging um, our skills enablement for the benefit of people who are previously incarcerated. So I talked about a couple of them in the Bay Area, and we are also working on it in Denver. Denver, um, which I have not visited yet. I started with Checker. I think um, I've only been here about nine months is what I mentioned. Um, And I was only seven days on the job before we went remote. Right. So I hadn't even had a chance to go to Denver to kind of meet the team out there. But uh, an amazing... You mean to tell me I've seen your office before you have? I totally, I know. I'm pretty sure you did. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. You knew more, way more about it than I did. Um, but, uh, the Denver community is amazing. There's leadership there. You know, I had a conversation with the, um, AG's office a while back about kind of the AG's interest in the business community there, better understanding fair chance hiring and taking steps to increase fair chance opportunities. So there's, Buckets of leadership um, at that level, and then there's definitely business uh, interest, I would say, uh, in fair chance hiring as well. I'm still learning about Denver, so I know there's tons of pockets that I haven't tapped into yet, but my experience has been that their readiness for kind of a fair chance pipeline is a little bit uh, different, maybe less developed than the Bay Area's is. And so an area that we want to make an impact is to – really create opportunities for tech companies to come together with an or, with a business like Checker, with an organization. One of them that we're working with there um, is an amazing organization called Cross Purpose. Uh, we also work closely with uh, Defy uh, sure, Colorado, Colorado there. Yeah. Um, and uh, several other, you know, organizations. So this model of business partnering intentionally with community to create workforce pathways for people who are previously incarcerated is what we're trying to replicate right now um, in in Denver. So we are in the early phases of it, but working with Cross Purpose, they've got a lot of expertise in building out vocational trainings. Mm-hmm. And so they got um, an opportunity to look at a tech pathway. And so we are kind of on the front ends. They're leading the ship, of course, and we're providing insight and, you know, um, input uh, where it makes sense. And as we develop this and we really think to ourselves, you know, what are the the jobs, what are the um, talents that are would make the most sense for Denver, Checker is going to try to fill in some of that vocational training, some of that hard skills training sure. on that pathway. And then also we want to kind of have a convening of different tech partners in Denver to talk about this so that we can both set the example and also encourage people to be a part of it. At this point, the encouragement is really like, be a part of the training. We're not asking anybody, you know, kind of, hey, you know, we would really love for you to hire X number of people a year, but just be a part of this training. So we're working on um, just trying to strengthen the Fair Chance Pathway in Denver, and uh, there's so many amazing people there. I wish I could have met them in person. We're doing everything virtually right now, but it's exciting. Sure. I mean, I don't know if, if we can go too much into it. I'll, I'll let you be the decider of that. But I think that what you're doing in Denver is awesome. And I think you had a conversation with me not too long ago uh, about 
getting possibly people in California a little bit to may, maybe put them in position to have opportunity to go to a place like Denver to help uh, with some of the efforts you have there. I mean, are you at liberty to speak about that a little bit uh, or at least tell us broadly uh, as much as you can about what that may be for people out here in California who may have an interest in going to a place like Denver? Definitely. It's still really new, but it was actually your idea. So let's just, you know, <laughs> let me just give you the feather in your hat on that one. Cause I remember it was it's totally your good. idea and you know, we were troubleshooting, right? How do we, um, really strengthen the fair chance, um, checkers, fair chance, uh, talent. And you had said to me, you said, you know, well, what about a relocation program? And I was like, huh, you know, I never heard of anybody doing that, but I think it's really interesting. And so, um, in the meeting that I had with, um, you know, our CEO and my colleagues and others, um, I, uh, you know, said I'd been talking to a colleague who thought that maybe a relocation program could work, that there are individuals who are extremely talented in the Bay Area who might be interested in starting sure. a new life in a place like Denver. So um, I pitched it, and interestingly enough, that was an idea that they thought could, you know, be worth exploring. So building out kind of the concept of it right now, but it's kind of a no-brainer concept. It's just Checker would be um, open to... Uh, you know, providing some support, some resources for somebody who was hired for a checker job right. in the Bay Area, but interested in moving to Denver. So sure. we would help with kind of the transition to Denver, getting somebody, you know, there's an amazing checker team there. But as I mentioned earlier, some of our community partners, there's a community partner team that I've talked to that is really willing to help somebody integrate in there. So, yeah, they would move, uh, work for Checker, and um, kind of help us build out our Fair Chance team, so to speak, uh, in Denver. And um, excited to see where that's going to go. I mean, I think we know it as executive relocation a lot of times. Right, right. And this is like kind of a, a perfect parlay on that. Sure. I mean, I think it's a, it's a logical extension of new beginnings and new chapters and allowing people to really reinvent themselves in ways that they may not be able to do. I mean, you and I were having a conversation earlier about geographics in California and the makeup uh, of so many inner city communities and, and, and the necessity of people if they're able to relocate at times, sometime to reset and get around different groups of people that may have different ways of thinking or people just want to turn the page and do something different in a different location. Uh, I think providing that type of opportunity to people who are interested in it uh, can only advance uh, their own individual lives. And so I think that, that that's a, a great concept that you guys have taken on. It has nothing to do with me. Any idea I Come have. Come on, Ken. You know. <laughs> any, any idea I have seriously belongs to the people. Yes. Uh, and to advance people. So well, I, that's I, a good one. I, I don't hold on to them, you know, personally myself, but I just want to see yeah. other people be able to reach their heights. So um, Ditto. I, I really appreciate the fact that you brought that to Checker and that they, they embraced it. I mean, Checker to me, every chance I get, I talk about Checker all across the state with people because I think that Checker has had the heart and the fortitude to step out in a scary space yep. and lead. And like I spoke earlier about Kamala and, and, and that, I'm not necessarily an endorser of Kamala, but I do recognize yep. people that are torchbearers. And when people have the heart to do something different, they gain my respect because that's what it takes to really lead mm -hmm. and to, to advance to new territory rather than the follower herd mentality that people like to do the bandwagon stuff. Yep. So, you know, my hats go off to checker you. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Rihanna, of course, yeah, it was who, just about to, too. Who, yeah. who has been a leader in the space and yep. has really just set an example. I first met her in a gym 
in Soledad prison. Yep. Did, didn't know a year and a half later I would meet her uh, through a Defy yep. program. And, and Checker brought in 50 people into a gymnasium in a prison and, and taught us all what it would look like to interview with the tech company, uh, things we should say, things we shouldn't say, and just really embraced us as if we were their colleagues yep. from, from the very first moment. And that's just so very important for people that are in vulnerable situations and in spaces where they're uncomfortable yep. to be embraced by people like yourself. So I really thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. And I'm so glad. I, literally, Rehana was on my mind right as you said it, too, because she really pioneered so much at Checker. They did not have a fair chance program before she moved into the original role there. So the foundation she said, the relationships that she made really kind of have allowed us to springboard in so many amazing ways. And just want to emphasize some of the work that she's doing now that's really cool is directly with businesses sure. and it's on adoption of fair right. chance work nationally right with uh, dave's killer bread foundation absolutely yeah so she's really kind of taking the um the mission and trying to scale the mission uh in a way that uh allows other businesses to really get on board with fair chance so definitely appreciate that work well, Lauren, we really appreciate you coming by and uh, talking to me today and uh, letting the folks out there know a little bit about the workforce environment, especially when it comes to the tech space and, and higher end jobs and what it takes and what some of the companies like Checker are doing. Uh, I look forward to having you back again to talk about projects and, and programs that I'm sure we'll be working on together and just yeah. to get an update on you personally yeah. and what you're doing and this wonderful work that you're doing. That's amazing. And uh, just super happy with what the crop organization is doing. Not to like kind of just blow you guys up right now, but I really do want to say that like I have, you know, been so impressed and just um, really admire the steps that you're taking uh, to create opportunities for folks and the bridges that you're building um, and look forward to working with you guys. So thank you so much for having me today. I can't wait for uh, kind of all the projects that we're going to be able to work on. Appreciate it, Lauren. Opportunities happen. Yes. All Thank right. you, Ken. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.